You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, The people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard, with the banners of their fathers' houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. Those to camp on the east side toward the sunrise shall be of the standard of the camp of Judah by their companies, the chief of the people of Judah being Nashan, the son of Amminadab, his company as listed being 74,600. Those to camp next to him shall be the tribe of Issachar, the chief of the people of Issachar being Nethanel, the son of Zuar, his company as listed being 54,400. Then the tribe of Zebulun, the chief of the people of Zebulun, being Eliab, the son of Helon, his company as listed being 57,400. All those listed of the camp of Judah by their companies were 186,400. They shall set out first on the march. On the south side shall be the standard of the camp of Reuben by their companies, the chief of the people of Reuben being Elazur, the son of Shadur, his company as listed being 46,500. And those to camp next to him shall be the tribe of Simeon, the chief of the people of Simeon being Shalumiel, the son of Zurashadai, his company as listed being 59,300. Then the tribe of Gad, the chief of the people of Gad being Eliasaph, the son of Rule, his company as listed being 45,650. All those listed of the camp of Reuben by their companies were 151,450. They shall set out second. Then the tent of meeting shall set out with the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camps. As they camp, so shall they set out, each in position, standard by standard. On the west side shall be the standard of the camp of Ephraim by their companies, the chief of the people of Ephraim being Elishama, the son of Amihud, his company as listed being 40,500. And next to him shall be the tribe of Manasseh, the chief of the people of Manasseh, being Gamaliel, the son of Padazur, his company as listed being 32,200. Then the tribe of Benjamin, the chief of the people of Benjamin, being Abidan, the son of Gideonai, his company as listed being 35,400. All those listed of the camp of Ephraim by their companies were 108,100. They shall set out third on the march. On the north side shall be the standard of the camp of Dan by their companies, the chief of the people of Dan being Ahiezer, son of Amishadai, his company as listed being 62,700. And those to camp next to him shall be the tribe of Asher, the chief of the people of Asher being Pagiel, the son of Okran, his company as listed being 41,500. Then the tribe of Naphtali, the chief of the people of Naphtali, being Ahira, the son of Enan, his company as listed being 53,400. All those listed of the camp of Dan were 157,600. They shall set out last, standard by standard. These are the people of Israel, as listed 
by their fathers' houses. All those listed in the camps by their companies were 603,550, but the Levites were not listed among the people of Israel as Yahweh commanded Moses. Thus did the people of Israel, according to all that Yahweh commanded Moses, so they camped by their standards, and so they set out, each one in his clan, according to his father's house. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 618 of this podcast. Today is Sunday, May 14th, 2023, also known as Mother's Day. And we could talk about Mother's Day in depth. I'm not going to talk about Mother's Day in depth on this podcast episode. All I will say is happy Mother's Day to my wife, Lauren. She is like me, an imperfect person, but my goodness, am I thankful that she's the mother of my children. Lauren is sweet. She is kind. She is gentle. She is patient. She's nurturing and she loves our children very, very much. And they love her very, very much. And I am extraordinarily grateful to God for the blessing that it is to have these eight that have been born to us thus far and a ninth that we are expecting, which she is even now carrying, due either the day before or the day after my birthday, depending on what we go by. If you split the difference, this next child of ours might be born on my birthday. We don't know. The good Lord knows in his timing, all things will happen as they ought to. But happy Mother's Day to my wife, Lauren, and thank God for mothers. Really, truly, I am not a mother. <clears throat> Just to be clear, I am not a Mr. Mom type. I am a dad. And one thing I've really come to appreciate over the years is when mama is out of commission, she gets really sick, or she has somewhere that she is going. If she goes to, say, for instance, a women's conference for a couple of days, like she did here uh, a couple months ago, and it's just me and the rest of our kids, things function differently. And I definitely do run a tighter ship. No two ways about it. I am more strict. I am more no nonsense. I am more uh, focused on discipline, perhaps you could say. And I say, hey guys, here's what the plan is. Nope. No, no, no. Come back. Let's get to this. Nope. I mean, now, but without Lauren, if she is 
resting because we get a stomach bug or something like that, or when she's recovering from delivery or the times where she's had surgery, let's say for instance, to remove her gallbladder or reconstruct her knee. Those times I have come to appreciate how important it is that mama softens some of the parental experience that our kids get. For a while, things will run much tighter. And then at a certain point, it's too tight. <laughs> it's, the, the ship is too tight. And just imagine, if you will, a literal ship out on the ocean. And the importance of having strength is for sure. You need to have strong materials making up your ship. But you also need to have certain amounts of flexibility here and there. Otherwise, what happens when you get buffeted by a wave? And the waves do come. What happens when the wind really, really picks up? You need to have a little bit of flex. And it has to be in the right places. And so it's not either or. It's both end. You need a father's strength in the home. I'm convinced. Absolutely. We see all kinds of bad things happening coast to coast in this country today because there are so many households, so many children being raised by only their mothers or their grandmothers, which is, I think, arguably less ideal. That's even farther from the ideal. But you have so many children, more to the point, growing up without fathers. And just like it's not to say that it's a defect of me as a man, as a father, that I don't provide everything that my children need, it's also not a defect necessarily of uh, mothers that they can't provide everything that their children need. But we need both and. We need fathers and mothers in the home. Thank God for mothers and for the way that God made women different from men. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And that's true from the moment of conception. And that is true all the way through our life cycle. God has done a very, very brilliant thing, and it is wondrous to behold and to appreciate. But let's talk a bit about Numbers chapter 2, which is what I read at the top of this episode. And let's understand an important truth that is just below the surface, which if we get bored, we will miss. If we get impatient and fidgety in reading Numbers 2, we will totally miss it. Let's appreciate how undergirding all of these details, and so also in chapter one, we have a macro example of what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. You know, this past Friday, we had biblical training group. And the topic for the week for our A Guide to Christian Theology discussion, the topic was the Holy Spirit. And so I'll just grab my outline here. I typed up an outline, as I do every week. We're in lecture 22 this past Friday. And we come to the topic of the Holy Spirit. And we got to talking about spiritual gifts. Because, of course, that's a big debate among American evangelical Christians, is what is the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer today Cessationists, as Gary Brashears points out, cessationists will say the role of the Holy Spirit is not just to sign, seal, deliver, I'm yours, 
the believer at the moment of faith, the role of the Holy Spirit is not just that, it's also to sanctify the believer throughout their life, to convict of sin, to testify to the truth of God's word in our lives. But the continuationist or continualist, the, in many cases, more charismatic Pentecostal Christian will say, ah, yes, there's that. And also, what's all this about spiritual gifts? What's this about speaking in tongues and prophecy and healing and discernment? What's all this that Paul writes about in Corinthians and that we see in the New Testament? That's for today as well. The cessationist says, no, that was just for the apostolic age. That is no longer needed because we have the canon of scripture completed. We have the Bible now, and that's the perfect which was to come where speaking in tongues would cease. And I say, I don't agree with the cessationist. I may not be a Pentecostal. I may not be a charismatic, but I am not a cessationist. And what you could say I am is I am a Christian who's waiting for a convincing argument for cessationism. I don't find the cessationist perspective on the verses in question to be convincing. But one thing I do find very convincing from the cessationists I've heard and I've known over the years is the concern about the more Pentecostal charismatic Christians that very often, not always, but very often, they will say, well, the spirit is leading in this direction. And if they are questioned by somebody who's more Berean-minded, they will say, well, you're being unspiritual because we're being spirit-led. And you say, well, wait, what about this passage of scripture here? What you're saying is not doctrinally correct, or what you're, what you're saying we should do is not orthopraxy, according to God's word, or this might even be sinful, or this is highly, highly questionable. Where's the testing of the spirits? You know, that's what the sober-minded cessationist will ask again and again of the more charismatic Pentecostal. And I agree with the concern that we would conduct our Christian life on an individual basis. We would conduct our corporate Christian life in the church in an orderly way. And I think back to this past Friday where we got to talking about the Holy Spirit and the question came up from one of my sons, what is speaking in tongues? <laughs> and I wasn't going to stop with this answer, but I said, well, that's a, that is a great question. There's a lot of debate about that. And JP, God bless JP, he picked up and he said, well, you know, there's this in the book of Acts, which is the translating of language into everybody's tongue, right? So speaking in tongues in the case of the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts meant that Jews who were gathered together in Jerusalem from all over, who were speaking other languages, each heard the gospel presentation in their own language, and they were able to understand it. But then you come to Corinthians, and something almost opposite is being described when Paul says that it would be better to speak a few words in a prophecy than to speak in a tongue unless there's an interpretation, unless there's an interpreter. And what's Paul getting at? He's saying, if you're not going to have an interpretation, then what is the practical benefit for the church? And if you're not 
doing this to edify and build up the church, then what are you doing it for? Then what's the point? And the unspoken part, the unspoken suggestion is that this is actually selfish ambition and vain conceit, which we do see. We, we can see that in our contemporary Christian experience in the American church. But be it known that verse 40 in 1 Corinthians 14 has Paul saying, but all things should be done decently and in order. And he never says, thou shalt not speak in tongues, thou shalt be a cessationist. He never says that, ever, ever, ever. Uh, He does say some actually much more clear things with regards to women in the church, which plenty of Pentecostals and Charismatics would do well to pay as close attention to as they do the spiritual gifts. It would be a great spiritual gift to the American church if we understood uh, verse 33 through 35, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. They are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission. As the law also says, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. We should be paying more attention to that, I dare say. You know, if you want to talk about what is said in church and how and for what reasons and for what purposes, a lot of it is disorderly and it is prideful where we are saying, oh, but that's not fair. Who are we actually arguing is unfair here? The one reading the scripture, namely you or I, or God himself? No scripture was delivered by the will of man. These are God-breathed truths that reveal God's character and also what it means for us to be holy for he is holy. But that is to say too, with regards to spiritual gifts, Paul says in verse 33, the beginning of verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And if you look at an alternative translation for that, actually any of several alternative translations, that was the ESV that I was just reading it to you in. But if you look at the NIV or the Berean Standard Bible or the Berean Literal Bible or the Amplified Bible or the Christian Standard Bible or the Holman Christian Standard Bible, contemporary English version, what we find is the word order is used. Order and disorder. Amplified says, God is not a God of confusion and disorder, but of peace and order. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says, since God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. NIV says, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. NLT says, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. And the big idea here is that God is a God of order. He is not a God of disorder. And so the big question should be, do we understand order as being part and parcel of peace? Now we can say, well, we want peace. Or you can say like the false prophets in the Old Testament, peace, peace, when there is no peace. But do we understand that peace has to do with orderliness and completion? And you don't have orderliness when somebody comes in and they say, well, I just want to innovate and mix this all up just for the fun of it, even though God has said he wants it this way. And this is his intention. And this is his character. And this is his purpose. Here in Numbers, we have God saying, to Moses and Aaron, the people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard. 
with the banners of their fathers' houses. Let me ask you this. If this were changed and innovated on to say with the banners of their fathers and mothers' houses, what kind of confusion would that be? Really, truly, with the banners of their fathers and mothers' houses. No, no, no. What if your father's house is over here and your mother's house is on the opposite side of the camp? Where does that put you? In between? No, 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 no. Let's keep this simple. Your father's house. Also, your father is the head of the house. Your mother is very important. God loves her. God made her special, just the way she is. (laughs) Although some, let's be honest, mothers and fathers alike, as also with children, God made us a certain way, and then sometimes we express the way that God made us in a way that God did not intend. Otherwise, we wouldn't be having this lengthy conversation about disorder. But nevertheless, it says the banners of their father's houses. And they are to camp facing the tent of meeting on every side, which is interesting. There's a symbolic quality to that. Just like each individual person is going to camp by his own standard with the banner of his father's house, all of the camps, all of the tribes are going to be facing the tent of meeting in a symbolic way so that we understand as a people, we are reminded, even just by the orientation of our camp, that we look to God to be our provider and our protector. And so in some sense, the father's house being the banner that is with you is a picture of God our Father being the one we look to. It's important to make that distinction and to understand that God is a God of order, not a God of disorder. He's a God of peace, not a God of confusion in Numbers chapter 2. But let's do move on. I've got some fun things to talk with you about and then some updates on the 2024 presidential race here in the United States of America. This is very important that we would talk about what the latest developments are and what do they portend? What are we actually deciding here? Speaking of symbolism, first off, before we get into presidential politics, a moment, (laughs) a word about Bear Grylls. Bear Grylls ditches vegan diet, explains why he now embraces carnivore lifestyle the Biggest Game Changer, reporting by Chris Enlow over at TheBlaze.com, quotes Bear Grylls, I was vegan quite a few years ago. In fact, I wrote a vegan cookbook, and I feel a bit embarrassed because I really promoted that. Quote, I thought that was good for the environment, and I thought it was good for my health, and through time and experience and knowledge and study, I realized I was wrong on both counts. Quote, out of all the different things I do for my health, I think that's probably been the biggest game changer in the sense of improving my vitality, well-being, strength, skin, and gut. Quote, it's just been getting away from the processed stuff and making the predominant thing in my diet, red meat and liver and the natural stuff, fruit, honey, that sort of thing. It's just about finding a more ancestral way of living. Now, let's pause and appreciate for a moment that the survivalist, (laughs) the survivalist was a vegan. And then he realized that's not so healthy, actually. And as a Christian, I don't look at the eating of meat 
as being something I do because my ancestors did it. I look at the eating of meat and I say, God said we could, and it's delicious. And if I feel healthier, if I feel stronger and like I have more endurance to do work or to focus, to concentrate, if I just enjoy eating meat and God said we could, and he blessed man and he said, you can have the animals for food as well. And then I look at the creation and I see animals eating animals. I don't like cruelty at all. I think it's awful. I don't like death at all. But on the flip side, it could very well be, as I reason, that prior to the flood, there was something different about our environment and perhaps what it was that we could actually eat to have a balanced diet. Maybe there was something different. There were foods that were available that weren't available after the flood in those quantities. There was a certain nutritional quality to a balanced plant-based diet that we just don't have now as a result of the flood. There's no getting around the fact that sin and the accumulative effects of sin over generations breaks God's order. And that's true within us at a DNA level. Our DNA breaks down over time. And it's also true around us in creation. And so as I reason, if God said we could, and we have people today saying, oh, no, you shouldn't. That's immoral. I say, you know what? This is a matter of principle, actually. I'm going to eat meat now on principle because you're saying we shouldn't because it's immoral, but God said we could, and he's the one who gets to define morality and you don't. And now I want to eat even more meat just because you said it's immoral. And God said, no, that's fine. Because again, I think you need to take it up with God. Your beef, so to speak, is with God. And so I'm going to go with God where the beef is. Where's the beef? Anyway, moving on. Here is a clip I'll play for you. This one is just, it's just funny. It's amusing. A clip of some Chicago residents out kayaking and encountering a Chicago River snapping turtle that they dub Chonkasaurus. I'll play the audio. It's about a minute long. Very, very amusing. Here you go. Without further ado, here's cut one. Take a listen. Look at this guy. Look at his. We got a picture of his most beautiful side. Look at the size of that thing. Oh my God. That's a massive turtle. Is that a snapper? He's a snapper. That's a, that's a Chicago River snapper. Are you kidding me? Look at that beast. Hey, how you doing, guy? You look good. You're healthy. Oh shit. We're rolling. Oh no. Jesus Christ. Where'd the other guy go? Look at that guy. Look at the size of this thing. Holy hell. You look good. I'm real proud of you. You've been eating healthy. You, you ever heard of liquid salad? We've been doing that. Al does that. You know, he's thick but strong. Look at him Are you happy to have spring? Damn, that's a scene if there ever was one, man. Look at that. <laughs> he's just hanging out on the rusty chains. We should take him out to eat. Okay. <laughs> The language, the language, we shouldn't be talking like that. I know they're excited. Shouldn't be using the Lord's name in vain. Not as just some expletive alongside others in a casual way. Don't do that. Don't, don't do that. 
But speaking of the turtle, the not to be highlight of this story from Jessica Swietoniowski. Swietoniowski. I don't know how you say her last name. We'll just call her Jessica. Uh, The not to be post from Jessica quotes chief wildlife biologist with forest preserves of Cook County, Chris Anker, who told WMAQ TV that the turtle is quite rare considering its size, calling it a quote, very large individual end quote, and that it's unusual for the reptiles to be seen basking along rivers. Don't touch the snapping turtle. They're called snapping turtles because they definitely do snap and they will take a finger off. This guy being as big as he is, he didn't get that way because he's restrained when it comes to the eating thing. So if you give him half a chance, he will definitely take a bite out of your finger and that'll be the last you see of your finger. (laughs) You won't be getting it back, I don't think. But it's interesting to me. I bring this up in part because I would not eat this animal. I wouldn't. I think that's weird. I don't think that the big giant snapping turtle living in the Chicago River is clean. And I don't mean that in a ceremonial moral way. I look at what the Lord says to Peter in Acts, when the sheet descends from heaven with all manner of living thing on it. And God says, Peter, arise, kill and eat. And he says, Lord, I've never eaten any unclean thing. And you as the reader should read that and think, does he remember who he's talking to? The one who declares what's clean and unclean? Of course, this is symbolic and a metaphor where God is explaining to Peter in a visual that the gospel will go out to the Gentiles. People who were not his people will be declared his people by faith, by grace through faith, being adopted in, grafted in. Nevertheless, just from a personal judgment standpoint and thinking about what this turtle probably eats, and what he's been marinating in, in the Chicago River, I would not eat this turtle. No, thanks. I I will stick with the animals that I can watch roam around in a field somewhere or in a forest. The ones that eat the grass and the grain and things like that, the leaves, I'll, I'll eat those. I don't think I want to eat this turtle at all, but he's obviously been eating well. He has not been a vegan, I'll bet you. Moving on, speaking of uh, large, slow, old reptiles, I'm going to play a clip for you from a certain Isabel Brown, who is, who, according to her Instagram uh, profile bio, is a truth seeker, streamer, and author, corgi enthusiast, lives in the free state of Florida, and is associated with, or a contributor and Uh, affiliate of TPUSA, Turning Point USA, also an SFLA ambassador. My wife sent me a video of her or from her account earlier this week. I'll go ahead and play the audio from that video for you. You can go and check out the longer video if you want to. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. But without further ado, here is cut to the Isabel Brown at Instagram. Take a listen. I just saw this comment on someone's video about Biden, and this isn't true, is it? Is it? Let's go do some math. Okay, Lincoln's presidency ended the day he was assassinated, which is April 15th, 1865. Joe Biden was born on November 20th, 1942. Biden's inauguration was on January 20th, 
2021. Okay, the time between Lincoln's death and Biden's birth is 77.6 years. And then the time between Biden's birth and Biden's inauguration, man was 78.2. What? Confirmed, uh, Joe Biden was born closer to Abraham Lincoln's presidency than his own. Oh, but it gets even better because the second oldest person currently in Congress has held his seat since 1981, which, fun fact, is 16 years before I was even born. Nancy Pelosi was actually born in 1940 before the attack on Pearl Harbor. It's hardly surprising to me then when the people in power genuinely have to ask if TikTok connects to the Wi-Fi networks in our home. But if we have a serious conversation about age limits to run for office, when should we start having a conversation about age limits to leave office? Okay, <clears throat> so a uh, couple thoughts. One, yes, we have a gerontocracy that's accurate, gerontocracy being rule of the uh, elderly. We do have that. It's definitely also oligarchic. That's true. Uh, it's also definitely questionable, highly questionable, highly sus, as the kids say, how these public servants, how these elected representatives have become so ridiculously wealthy. AOC and Matt Gates recently teamed up, surprisingly, to introduce legislation barring lawmakers and their families, their immediate families, from investing in the stock market, in part because these lawmakers can pour money into or pull money out of stocks based on insider trading. It's illegal if you and I do it, but it's a double standard. It's partiality. If they have the inside track on legislation that they're going to pass that either raises up or brings low the corporations that they are investing in or pulling their investments out of, they can invest accordingly and become very, very wealthy. They always win. The House always wins. Literally, the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate can always win at the stock market if they control how these corporations rise and fall and also invest accordingly on the front end before you or I are going to have any idea what's going to pass or what's not going to pass in the way of legislation. But a good example of the hypocrisy and the irony and the corruption, it really is corruption, is a post from Commodore Vanderbilt over at Not To Be. Bernie Sanders doubled his income last year thanks to profits from book, quote, it's okay to be angry about capitalism. Bernie Sanders, socialist, writes a book about everything that's wrong with capitalism and makes a ton of money off of the book because of what is left of capitalism. That's corrupt. That is two-faced. That is ironic. When AOC makes a whole bunch of money off of merchandising about how we need to eat the rich, <laughs> when she makes a bunch of money off of selling tickets to who? The wealthy to come and hear her deride capitalism in this country. And then she's going to turn right around and vote for things and against things that actually ultimately damage 
the capacity of the people who are not super wealthy to get wealthy, I say that is two-faced, that is corrupt. Where do we start? How do we begin to address this problem? I think in part, we start with term limits. That would go a long, long way. Also, you start with ethics investigations and possibly even ejecting from Congress people who have capitalized for decades on insider trading as lawmakers. And oh, by the way, if they get into the White House and they are allowing foreign nationals, foreign individuals and governments to profit off of the inside track on what the U.S. government is about to do, is planning to do, I think they should be removed from office as well. And that just happens to be where we find ourselves, that the president of the United States of America is implicated in a money laundering scheme and bribery scheme with foreign nationals spanning decades. His family has gotten fantastically, ridiculously rich off of selling his info, his influence, and who is the worst for it? Regular people like you and I. We're worse off for it. Start with term limits. And yes, let's take a look at if there's a lower range for how old you have to be to run for office or run for president specifically, if you have to be at least 35, well then maybe at a certain point we say, okay, hey, (laughs) 75, eh, it's probably too old. That's probably too old. You should probably be out of office by that time. We have some of the oldest, longest serving lawmakers and various other officials in our nation's history, and it shows. When a U.S. Senator, Dianne Feinstein, can be wheeled in and not even know where she's going, not even know where she's being wheeled to, I say, this is corrupt. She is not actually the one that people are voting for. They're voting for whoever has been bankrolling her behind the scenes and calling the shots. Biden is not all there, or he's playing a very, very clever game of possum and just pretending to be uh, dementiatic or to be suffering from Alzheimer's. If you re-elect Joe Biden in 2024, my fellow Americans, you are overlooking his corruption and his lack of capacity to do the job. And what you're really voting for is the people who behind the scenes tell him what to do and decide what his agenda is and give him his talking points and his speech. He's a puppet. A lot of these people at their age are figureheads in Congress and even now in the White House. They're figureheads, they're puppets. And even a Bernie Sanders doesn't actually stick to what it is that he claims is his principle. He is making money on selling this book based on the fact that he is a longstanding member of Congress. He is a U.S. senator making money trying to collapse capitalism. What we should understand here is that these people are not for capitalism. They don't represent capitalism. They are not for capitalism, free market capitalism. They are for a very rigged economy whereby various corporate interests give a lot of money to make sure that certain legislation passes and other legislation doesn't pass. And they keep these 
characters in office and living high on the hog and famous and well-fed to deliver the legislative agenda that is desired. And all the while on the left, when these same folks say, we're down with capitalism, we don't want capitalism, eat the rich, it's not true. It's a lie. They're pretending to be against the very people who have bought them. And on the flip side, when so many conservatives, establishment Republican types, when they say, oh yeah, we're for the free market, what they really mean is they are for the folks who have donated to their campaigns being able to participate in the free market. So it's a free market for some, but not for all, which is to say that they're also, it's controlled opposition, which is why we need political outsiders. We need people who are not from the DC beltway, who are not from this ecosystem running for office and winning office and having a broad mandate to clean up the corruption. We have a very big problem in our day with corruption in the US government. Activists and lobbyists might have their place, sure, but everything should be presented in an orderly way and without fraud, without deceit, not hidden behind, oh, well, that's just very complicated and you wouldn't understand and leave it to the experts. Don't make it so complicated that only your experts can understand it. Make it simple. Write these things in common vernacular, everyday language so that we understand what it is that you're voting for and against. And oh, by the way, also don't put a whole bunch into some giant package and then hold the U.S. government hostage, the U.S. economy hostage and say, you're either going to vote for all of these things that we promised our donors we would do, or the world's going to come crashing down. Don't do that. No, 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 no. We don't negotiate with terrorists. (laughs) When calls to cut spending because this can't be sustained and it will lead to collapse are then turned into, oh no, you guys are going to collapse the system. Aha, yeah, yeah, hot potato. I say that is the established class that is well entrenched and corrupt, flipping the script and scapegoating and trying to avoid accountability. These are large, old, slow reptiles in too many cases who have gotten very, very fat feeding off of whatever they can get a hold of at the bottom of the Chicago River. And then they send themselves on the chains. I think that snapping turtle, Chonkosaurus, is symbolic of the political establishment of both parties in far too many cases in this country. And something needs to be done about it. That something can only come about by God's grace if we are courageous and if we are for order and we hate bribes and everything is done in an above board way. I say corruption is not a new problem. Corruption is more common than you might think throughout history and throughout the world. Even in our own history, corruption, political corruption, the spoil system has been a problem at various times. And we would do well to dust off some history books and see what kind of a character it has traditionally taken, it has historically taken to root out corruption and how they go about it. We should be dusting off our history books and 
looking for some good examples, some good patterns to follow because it is time to clean house. And I'm not calling for some insurrection. What I'm saying is this absolutely needs to be a top priority or else we won't have a country. We just flat won't. An example of how our current uh, political establishment, our current status quo is even now collapsing our country right now is what is happening on the southern border with Mexico. And I'm going to play another clip for you here. This will be cut three. Here is Fox News's Bill Melugin reporting at the border. Take a listen, cut three, and then I'll explain. Brett, good evening to you. Border Patrol reports a record-setting 83,000 migrants crossed our border illegally this week alone. Just to put that number in perspective for you, that is equivalent to a full-capacity Dallas Cowboys football stadium crossing our border in a single week. Downtown Brownsville, Texas today, where evidence of mass migrant releases is everywhere you turn. Large amounts of mostly Venezuelan migrants can be seen wandering with folders containing DHS paperwork after their release from federal custody. That's despite claims from the White House that such releases aren't happening. The claims that CBP is allowing or encouraging mass uh, release of migrants uh, and is just categorically false. That is not what's occurring. The migrants themselves say otherwise. I was released this morning. I doubted myself if I was going to be allowed in, but I've made it. But not everyone is smiling. In San Antonio today, Fox cameras were rolling as ICE loaded up a deportation flight with illegal immigrants. As the agency stresses, there are consequences for crossing the U.S. border illegally. Fox News was in Matamoros, Mexico, as Title 42 expired at midnight. We watched as a group of migrants gathered to potentially cross into Brownsville illegally, with one man getting into the water. But Texas National Guard soldiers urged them not to from across the river, as they continue to fortify the U.S. side and physically block illegal crossings. Right across that river, there's 22,000 people that are camped out. Fox News also joining a group of GOP senators in Brownsville as the clock ran out on Title 42. The Border Patrol Union took the senators to the major illegal crossing spot in Brownsville, which has since been fortified by the state of Texas. Across the river, flickering flames from migrant camps. Migrants who continue to wait. Now, let me just do some quick math, okay? 83,000 illegal aliens crossing our southern border with Mexico. If you divide that number by 50 states, that comes out to 1,660 illegal immigrants, illegal aliens per state. 1,660 per state. Now, they're not going to evenly spread out to every state, of course, but that's one week. If they did spread out evenly, that would be 1,660 per state. There are 3,142 counties in the U.S., according to Wikipedia. So that is roughly, in one week, one illegal immigrant for every other county in the U.S. 
supposing they were to (laughs) spread out evenly, which again, they won't, but that's one week, one week. That's incredible. And let me just ask you, if you look at the images on our Southern border, if you look at some of the footage, some of the stills, is this orderly? Would you call this order? And for that matter as well, if God is a God of order, not a God of disorder, not a God of chaos, but of peace, and peace here is possibly translated as order, peace and order, then what is this on our southern border as God would desire? In relation to what God has demonstrated of his character in Numbers chapter 2, in comparison to that, how should we think of 83,000 illegal aliens crossing the southern border with Mexico in one week. As the media will portray it, and as Democrats like Joe Biden will portray it, Republicans are the bad guys because the Republicans are saying, this is chaos. This is scandalous. But let me just ask you, is it more in keeping with the character of God and his word to say, let's have tens of thousands of strangers pouring into our country. We don't know where they came from. We don't know why they want to be here. We don't know what their criminal records are. We don't know what their character is. We don't know what their means are, but their means are probably whatever they're carrying on their backs or in their pockets. That's what they have. That's what they bring with them. Who knows what else? Who knows what they bring with them in their hearts? Some of them may be bringing the best of intentions. Sure, many of them even. They want to come here and provide for their families. Perhaps they want to come here and protect their families better than they can in the countries they come from. But then at the same time, we have to understand that the reason why 83,000 people would cross the southern border with Mexico coming into the U.S. is because where they're coming from is dangerous or there's a lack of provisional capacity. And so when they come here, if The countries they have come from are rich in natural resource wealth, but that natural resource wealth is not accessible because of problems of political corruption. When 83,000 people are coming into our country from those countries, are some of them bringing a very tilted, distorted idea of what is acceptable in terms of political corruption. If America is better than where they came from, okay, it's good for them. But if America is better than where they came from and they're bringing ideas from where they came from, are they bringing ideas that are making America more stable, less corrupt? That's an important question. But even setting aside all of that, is this orderly? Am I the bad guy if I'm a conservative? Or let's take a Republican governor or a Republican lawmaker or a Republican candidate for president who says, this is out of order. This is chaos. Is that Republican that I would vote for who wants to stop this, who has demonstrated in the past that they would put a stop to this? Is that Republican the bad guy for saying, okay, this is totally out of order. This is unlawful. This is immoral. This is unwise. Are they the bad guy? Am I the bad guy for voting for them? What is the long-term effect of 1,660 additional residents 
who came into the country illegally being distributed across these 50 states. What's the effect on each one of those states in one week? What's the effect on each of those states in one week? If even one one hundredth, if even just 16 of those illegal immigrants turn out to be violent criminals, human traffickers, drug dealers, murderers, rapists, if even one one hundredth of these new residents of each one of those states is going to continue on in a lawless fashion, just like they crossed our border, despite and contrary to our laws and our express wishes, our declared intentions. No, no, this is our house. Hey, hold on. No, no, this is our country. You can't just come in. If they carry on like that, once they're in the country and they start coming into your actual literal house and you say, no, no, you can't come in. And they say, oh, I am, I am coming in. You can't stop me. I'm coming in and I'm going to take your stuff in your actual literal house. What's the effect across these 50 states in one week? Biden is obviously not all that concerned about it. Joe Biden went to the beach after shattering all-time record with 83,000 illegal aliens storming border in one week, according to reporting by Ryan Saavedra. Joe Biden spent his weekend at his beach home in Delaware, which is guarded by a taxpayer-funded wall, as Ryan Saavedra points out. Walls are immoral when Republicans want them, but when a Democrat has a wall around their property, then that's totally normal. Absolutely not a scandal. Border Patrol, specifically a union for Border Patrol, according to reporting by Candace Hathaway over the blaze, says corrupt Biden should be arrested for worst sustained disaster ever seen at our border. The Border Patrol Union stated this week that President Biden should be arrested for creating, quote, the worst sustained disaster ever seen at our border, end quote. With the end of Trump era Title 42, migrants are massing at the border in numbers agents have never witnessed before. According to Border Patrol Chief Raul Ortiz, there are, quote, upwards of 60,000 migrants that are staging in and around the immediate border area, end quote, in hopes of getting through now that the policy ended at midnight on Friday. In response to the overwhelming crisis, the National Border Patrol Council torched the Biden administration for being, quote, absolutely corrupt to its core, end quote, and preventing agents from protecting the southern border. On Thursday, the NBPC shared a photo of Biden on Twitter with the caption, quote, this is by far the worst sustained disaster that any BP agent active or retired has ever seen at our border. And one man is responsible for every single bit of it with the worst still to come. Quote, nobody has any idea who they are, what medical conditions they have, what their records are, or what their intentions are, end quote, the NBPC stated. On Friday, the union posted again on Twitter, saying, quote, we started with sanctuary cities, then sanctuary counties, then sanctuary states, and now Biden has turned our entire country into a lawless, borderless sanctuary, end quote. We should understand that what's at stake here is the destruction or sustenance of the United States of America as a distinct country in the world. That's what's at stake here, is even the idea that the United States of America would be a separate distinct country. What is to be decided here is order versus chaos. Do you want peace or do you want lawlessness? The Democrats want lawlessness consistently. On this issue, specifically, we're talking about 
but on every issue. But what is Biden concerned about? Well, I'll play another cut for you here. Here's cut four of Biden speaking at Howard University, which is a traditionally black college. Take a listen. We know that American history has not always been a fairy tale. From the start, it's been a constant push and pull for more than 240 years between the best of us, the American ideal that we're all created equal, and the worst of us, a harsh reality that racism has long torn us apart. It's a battle that's never really over. But on the best days, enough of us have the guts and the hearts to stand up for the best in us, to choose love over hate, unity over disunion, progress over retreat, to stand up against the poison of white supremacy as I did my inaugural address to single out as the most dangerous terrorist threat to our homeland is white supremacy. I'm not saying this because I'm of the black HBCU. I say it wherever I go. To stand up for truth over lies, lies told for power and profit. To confront the ongoing assault to subvert our elections, suppress our right to vote. Uh, you heard the murmuring, right? You heard the murmuring in the background when he said, I'm not just saying this because I'm at a black HBCU. And there's all this murmuring. And you can't hear what any particular murmuring is, or I didn't anyways. Maybe your ears are better than mine. But that murmuring is, I think, a whole lot of, well, let's be honest. Yeah, you are. (laughs) We might agree. We might have clapped. But yes, you are. You are pandering to us. Biden says, he tells people this wherever he goes, that the most dangerous threat terrorist, terrorist threat to our homeland is white supremacy. Now, let me see if I can unpack this briefly. To the left, to Democrats, to Joe Biden, or at least his scriptwriters, white supremacy is anything and everything that they don't like. It is a junk drawer into which they put every idea, every proposal, every principle that they don't like. Everything that they believe is getting in the way of so-called progress, which is to say their agenda, they call it white supremacy. And here's how this is going to play out and has been playing out, and it will get worse before it gets better, unless we finally say that's enough. Enough is enough. Stop. Anybody, and it doesn't matter your skin color. It doesn't. It doesn't matter if you're white or black or brown or red or yellow. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. Anybody who stands up for traditional Western values, Judeo-Christian values, what was handed down to us by the Greeks and the Romans and the Jews and the Christians over the last several thousand years, anybody who says, no, we need to keep that. Nope, don't destroy that. Nope, don't tear that down. Nope, don't burn that. Nope, don't set that on fire. Nope, don't smash that. Anybody who says, we need this, this is our inheritance. This is our father's banner, our father's house's banner. No, this is where God told us to 
camp facing the tent of meeting, anybody who says that on any particular item will continue to be labeled by the corporate media and by the Democrat Party and by Democrat candidates and officials a white supremacist. And if the left continues on trying to dismantle every form or expression of so-called oppression, if they continue on doing that and they face any opposition whatsoever and anybody gets upset, angry, and says, I know you can't. No, you don't. That's not yours. That doesn't belong to you. No, you can't redistribute my wealth. No, you can't redistribute my children to somebody who's going to re-educate them and talk them into gender-affirming care, so-called. That's a euphemism for surgical mutilation of their bodies, being spayed and neutered and having a double mastectomy if they're a girl. Anybody who gets upset and angry at saying, no, you can't put my child on puberty blockers. No, you can't molest my child. No, you can't release 83,000 illegal immigrants a week into the U.S., 1,660 per state. No, you can't. No, you don't. We'll be labeled a white supremacist. And if they get angry and they say, no means no, I really mean stop. Absolutely. They are already setting it up. Biden is setting it up in this speech to portray those people, regardless of their skin color, as white supremacist terrorist threats. And the really sinister thing about this is once you start calling half the country, at least, a whole bunch of terrorists, well, then you can go after them with the full power of the U.S. government and the U.S. military. And then where do we find ourselves? Quite frankly, quite simply, we find ourselves in a civil war. And oh, by the way, the Democrats, whatever they're saying, they're playing the part that they did in the last civil war. And Republicans are playing the part that they did in the last civil war, or in the run-up, I should say, to the last civil war. You have weasel words from the Democrats, and they would absolutely cane on the floor of the U.S. Senate, like they did Charles Sumner on May 22nd, 1856, A pro-slavery Democrat from South Carolina attacked Senator Charles Sumner, an abolitionist Republican from Massachusetts, with a cane and beat him senseless. And nobody did anything. Nobody stopped him, beat him senseless. And then what did the Democrats do in the following weeks? They made up little patches and necklaces with canes because they were proud of it. And they wanted to put every other abolitionist, every other Republican on notice We'll cane you too. We will come for you too. We will beat you within an inch of your life and you'll never be the same again too. Just like we did to Charles Sumner. The Democrats are playing the exact same game, the exact same brutal, lying, vicious game that they were in the run-up to the first civil war. Only this time, the shoe's on the other foot as they see it. They are ascendant. They have the institutional power. They have the corporate media. They have the academy They have the White House. They have a very, very slim majority in Congress, but they don't have the Supreme Court and they don't have the majority of state governments. And yet one of the scary things about Biden being as old as he is and being as out of touch with reality as he is clearly is one, when he is just kind of sort of sharp, he could say any number of things all the while thinking to himself, I don't have long to live anyways. What is it to me? And the radical left might just say, yeah, sure. Why not? We'll write that into the script. We'll go with that. 
especially if it looks like they might lose in 2024. Now, briefly, briefly, not all Democrats are thinking along the lines of the radical left, and that's important to remember. A example of a Democrat that I think we should want more of, more like, is Joe Manchin from West Virginia. Democrat Senator Joe Manchin announced on Wednesday that he would oppose every Biden administration nominee for the EPA due to the environmental agency's expected crackdown on emissions at power plants, Ben Zeisloft reports for the Daily Wire. The forthcoming regulations, which are widely reported to be scheduled for publication on Thursday, would demand that power plants considerably reduce their carbon emissions by 2040, a rule that would force plants to use expensive carbon capture technology or switch to alternative fuel sources. Skeptics of the move are concerned that the policy would decrease energy reliability and artificially increase electricity costs for households, and that is absolutely correct. I've worked in the oil and gas industry for over a decade now. I have friends who work for utilities companies who are describing for me how this is happening in the state of Colorado already and how everybody who works at these utility companies is afraid to question they are afraid to counter or contradict or push back at all on what is coming down from the top, from their corporate boards, because this is what ESG woke investing wants, or this is what the state regulatory board wants. And so they are decommissioning some of the most efficient coal and natural gas power generation, or they're planning to overhaul it in ways that are going to make the electricity by which you cook your food, you keep your lights on, you keep your computer on, you charge your smartphone, you watch TV, you heat your home in the winter, you cool your home in the summer. They're going to make all of this so cost prohibitively expensive that the way they reduce carbon emissions is really ultimately by just forcing your hand to not use electricity. So they're de-electrifying even as China is ramping up their use of natural gas and coal. And if we did get into a hot war with China in the coming years, which many experts have predicted, over Taiwan or whatever, if Mexico did invite China in to deal with their drug cartel problem, and then at the same time, you have an open border with Mexico, and China decided to just come on up over that border into the U.S., how would we win that war? How would we maintain our freedom and our liberty? This has been set up over time for quite some time, but this is absolutely a question of whether we will continue to be a free and independent country on the face of this earth. You think, oh, I could pay a little bit more for electricity, I suppose. But then it's, oh, I could pay a little bit more for food, I suppose. Oh, I could pay a little bit more for an electric car, I suppose. Oh, I I could just not say that thing on social media, I suppose. Oh, I could just not talk about that issue with these people in my community because they'll get really upset and possibly threaten my life or my livelihood. You know, going back to the meeting that I had with a certain retired pastor and several men from our church uh, this past week, one of the passing comments, not even like the mainstay of our conversation, just a passing observation, was with regards to having conservatives and Christians run for school boards in the area to push out the sexualization of children, really the molestation of children in our public schools to say that's enough, no more. Nope, 
get those books out of here, get those teachers out of here, get those groups out of here. You cannot molest our children. You can't groom our children. No, this is not okay. Unacceptable. One of the passing comments was, if you run as a Christian and as a conservative for the school board, in some of these little towns in the area, you will get death threats, as in people have gotten death threats in the community. Do you know what this sounds like? It sounds like the run-up to the Civil War. It sounds to me like when Republicans, after the Civil War, during Reconstruction, were winning political offices, and the KKK decided, we'll see about that. We're going to go after Republicans in our area. We're going to go after Black Republicans in particular. Because the only kind of Black American the Democrats want is the kind that votes Democrat, which is to say they're still stuck on slavery. Even if you don't call it that, they're still stuck on slavery because they want the black American voting public to vote for them so that they can generate wealth by selling out this country to the likes of China. It's just a more complicated plantation, really, that the, that the Democrats have in mind. And you say, well, they're not just doing it to black Americans. Right? So that's different. No, no, no. The Deep South prior to secession had really three categories of people. There were really three classes to Southern society. It wasn't just blacks or whites. On the one hand, you had the plantation owners, the Southern aristocracy that owned the plantations and the slaves. And yes, you had the slaves who were black Africans. But there was a third category that the white ruling class viewed with as much or more contempt as compared to their black slaves. And that was the white trash, as they saw it, who were good only for living in the mountains and providing a buffer against hostile Indian tribes. And if you want to know the truth, the supposed white trash actually had much more in common with the black African slaves in the South. But because of because of a really, really strong strain of Scots-Irish territorialism on the part of those peoples who had moved here from Scotland and Ireland and settled in the mountains, when the Civil War kicked off, for those people, it was about states' rights. It was about a very clannish mentality and the white slave owners, the plantation owners, who were the minority, by the way, they exploited that to the hilt. They said, hey, you're not going to let that rival clan to the north come down here into our territory. Tell us what to do, are you? And a lot of white Southerners fell for it, hook, line, and sinker. But the Democrats, who still today make up the equivalent of that old plantation-owning, slave-owning class, they deliver the same kind of message, if they can get away with it, to everybody, black, white, yellow, red, brown, doesn't matter, to everybody that they view as beneath them, and it's evil, it's fraudulent, it's exploitative, it's pitting brother against brother, which makes what the Democrats do, even on that point, even with regards to rhetoric, no, not politics as usual, even with regards to the rhetoric they use and the way in which they lie about events and the relationship between causes and effects politically, socially, economically, that makes the short list of things that God says are an abomination to him. In case you've forgotten, Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 lists a false witness who lies 
haughty eyes, a lying tongue, a heart that devises wicked schemes, hands that shed innocent blood, a person who stirs up conflict in the community, feet that rush into evil. All of these seven things typify the Democrat Party and their approach to gaining and holding on to political power for decades. This is practically the short list of how Saul Alinsky advises community organizers to operate. Yeah, lie. Absolutely. In the end, it'll be worth it. This is the short list of what the Democrats have been doing for not just decades, but really since before the first American Civil War. Kudos to Joe Manchin for saying, I'm opposed to this. So that just goes to show not all Democrats are like this. Sure, but Joe Manchin is an outlier. Just like among Republicans, I would like to say it is more the exception than the rule that you have false witnesses who lie and haughty eyes and a lying tongue and hearts devising wicked schemes and hands that shed innocent blood. It is more the exception than the rule on the Democrat side that you would have somebody who is sensible and trying to be fair and trying to be reasonable and trying to be honest. This is not a question of right versus left. This is a question of good and evil. And it is a lie. It is an evil lie and an abomination to the Lord our God. It is something he hates that the Democrats call Republicans white supremacists for saying we need to be able to control our southern border in an orderly way. We need to not artificially make electricity cost prohibitive. We need to outlaw abortion. But let's talk briefly about Donald Trump, former president Donald Trump, and some reporting by Daniel Chayton over at the Daily Wire. Trump takes CNN anchor to the mat in 2024 town hall. I'll play a couple of highlights here from that town hall earlier this week or last week, I should say. Now that it's Sunday, I'll play a couple of clips here and then I have some thoughts. We're running out of time and it is a Sunday morning. I need to take my family to church. I'm on the security team this morning, but I'm going to play a couple of clips here and we'll talk about it. Here is cut five. Take a listen. Obama. But Joe Biden didn't ignore a subpoena to get those documents back like Joe you Biden did. And took so that's the question. Boxes. But that's the question that investigators have, I think, is why you held on to those documents when you knew the federal government was seeking them and then had given you a subpoena to return them. Are you them. ready? Are you ready? Can I talk? Yeah, what's you the mind? answer? Can I, do you mind? I would like for you to answer the question. Okay, it's very simple to that's answer. That's why I asked it. It's very simple to You're a nasty person, I'll tell you. <laughs> And just for good measure, <laughs> just for good measure, let's go ahead and play cut six as well. So when, they, when they went to the Capitol and they were breaking into the Capitol, smashing windows, injuring police officers, why did you, why did it take you three hours to tell them to go home? I don't believe it did. Oh, let me pull it out. I have to pull it out. <laughs> so, so if you look at... On January 5th, the day before, I said, please support our Capitol Police and law enforcement. They are truly on the side of our country. Stay peaceful. Stay peaceful. This was the day before, and this was in the form of Twitter. Now use truth, truth social. I think it's far superior, okay? I hope everybody's on truth. I hope everybody's on truth. Uh, if you look, January 6th, this is at two, before 
I am asking for everyone at the U.S. Capitol to remain peaceful. This is right after, as it was happening. But what happened is they took it down. I don't know why. I think they took it down because it was so good. They didn't like it being up there. <laughs> I am asking, this is, and we didn't know until I got it back, because now I have 90 million people waiting for me to go back, but I'm on truth and I'm staying on truth. Listen, I am asking for everyone at the U.S. Capitol to remain peaceful. No violation. It's, we want no violation. We want no violence. Remember, we are the party of law and order. Respect the law and our great men and women in blue. Thank you. That was at 2.30. That was very early. Mr. President, I looked at the same time. <laughs> and just for any out. Uh, one more. Just one more. I'll play cut seven here. Thank you, Mr. Trump. Thank you very much. I'm 26. I'm a veteran. I uh, help manage a private aviation company. Um, you want a job? I'd love one, yeah. I'm looking, yeah. I'm looking for somebody very good. I, uh, I'm not for mandates or government interference in private business, but right. I've seen Republicans going after us like DeSantis after Disney. Right. What would you do as president to protect us from government interference? Well, I'm the one that really wants to protect you. All of these fake investigations of me are about election interference. They think, because I'm leading Biden by 11 points, 7 points, 9 points, I'm leading DeSanctimonious by a lot by 40 points or 45 points. I think he ought to just relax and take it easy and think about the future because right now his future is not looking so good. I will tell you this, we are really putting it to Biden, but he's putting it to himself because the economy stinks, inflation is horrible, and the border is a disaster. And by the way, the way he got out of Afghanistan was the single most embarrassing moment in the history of our country. Okay. (laughs) That's enough. That's enough. You can find more clips if you want to and check out more of how that town hall went. CNN is taking a huge amount of flack, even though the ratings were were through the roof, I think for the same reason that Fox News pulled Tucker Carlson off of his primetime slot. They weren't really first and foremost concerned about how many viewers tuned in as they were concerned about advertising boycotts and the global elite ruling class establishment being upset with what Tucker Carlson was saying. Well, so also CNN decided to put Trump out there in this town hall in uh, New Hampshire. And they were hoping, I think, to only present the negative and to do all kinds of manipulative things with camera angles and switching camera angles frequently so as to create something of a chaotic feeling in viewers as they were watching. But one of the things that CNN is drawing flack for is not having controlled better who actually attended this town hall. He's getting applause, and that just makes the left livid. Oh, you shouldn't have a whole bunch of people in there that are going to applaud what Trump is saying or cheer him on or laugh when he tells the CNN uh, assassin, <laughs> public image assassin, uh, you're, you're really a nasty person. You know that? You know that, oh, what is CNN doing? They lost total control. Well, you know what? CNN's job is not supposed to be controlling the American people. Is it? Is that? Is that CNN's job? Oh, 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 I see. So, so CNN's job is to control Donald Trump. Oh, I see. So CNN's job is to control 
Republicans and the American voting public and the perception of these things so that we vote the way that the people who own CNN want us to vote. I I see. I see. That's awful, right? That's awful. Remember again, the seven things God hates, false witnesses who lie. It's not no big deal. It's not no big deal. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, a heart that devises wicked schemes. It's not just the effects that God hates. He hates the witness. He hates the eyes, the tongue, the heart, the hands, the feet. He hates the person who stirs up conflict in the community. But that is to say, too, we have to consider what is actually being said by Trump. Is he trying to beat them at their own game? I think for much of what he has drawn flack for, the answer is yes. And therein lies something of the moral dilemma. Should he be trying to beat them at their own game? That's something that conservatives really, really are divided over. Should Trump be trying to beat these people at their own game? Calling this young woman a nasty person for all these people to see. On the other hand, you have many Republicans, many conservatives, many moderates saying, well, she was being nasty. She was rudely interrupting and talking over him. She was very obviously not wanting him to actually answer some of these questions in the way that he was starting to. She was being combative. And then he's combative right back. And some would say, well, she was being combative. She started it. The corporate media started it. The establishment Republicans and Democrats started it. This is the only way to win. We're never going to win if we're always playing defense and we're letting the left and the establishment, more to the point, run roughshod over us. If we're always being a gentleman, we're we're not going to win. And we have a country to either save or lose. Humanly speaking, as they see it, I look at the shot Trump takes at Ron DeSantis and him calling him Ron DeSanctimonious. And even the question from the veteran who helps manage uh, some company, and he's concerned about government interference. And he mentions Ron DeSantis going after Disney. I listen to that and I say, no, no, no. What was that about? We're never going to win unless we fight. I think the way that DeSantis is fighting is much, much better. But let's remember, it's not just Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis running for president. There's also Vivek Ramaswamy, who wants to raise the voting age to 25, according to reporting by Daniel Plainview over at Not The Bee. That's the latest. He proposes raising the legal voting age to 25. If you have to be 35 to run for president, it is worth considering whether you should be 35 to vote for president. There is something of a consistency to that, which makes sense. And Vivek Ramaswamy suggesting this is pretty much the opposite of Democrats saying, well, maybe we should lower the voting age to 16. 125 Democrats and one Republican vote to lower voting age to 16. This was back in March of 2019 that that happened, by the way. But Vivek Ramaswamy is like, you know what? How about not just no? How about we raise the voting age to 25? And if all you hear is just what's said in each moment and you don't remember, you would say, oh, that's crazy. I don't do anything. Well, the Democrats want to do something. So Vivek Ramaswamy is saying, oh, we should go the other direction, if anything, especially with so many perpetual adolescents, especially with 
the public education system doing such a poor job of teaching civics and science and reading and math and (laughs) everything except for gender theory and critical race theory, it seems. In the majority of cases, progressively, year over year, Vivek Ramaswamy is onto something. And it's not to be just dismissed out of hand. But now let's do talk briefly about DeSantis. DeSantis, according to reporting by Ryan Saavedra at the Daily Wire from just yesterday, arrived in Des Moines, Iowa, for unplanned stop to meet conservatives after Trump canceled a rally over weather. So there were some tornado warnings and Trump was going to have an outdoor rally and canceled it last minute over concerns. And I won't criticize that if that's the real reason you're concerned about the safety of not just yourself showing up and getting hit by a tornado, but concerned about the people who would come out to hear you speak. But on the other hand, Ron DeSantis showing up unplanned versus a planned event being canceled is a good look. It is. It's a good look in a lot of ways. And the reason for this is very simple. If you tell people to expect to go to some big exciting thing, and then that exciting thing doesn't happen, even if it's for a totally legitimate reason, there's disappointment. On the other hand, if you don't tell anybody to expect a good thing, which I maintain DeSantis showing up in Iowa is, it's a good thing. I really like DeSantis and I really do approve of wholeheartedly everything I've heard coming out of Florida for several years now through COVID and the gender theory, trying to trans the kids thing, going after Disney, I think is a good move. They have it coming. DeSantis showing up being a good thing and unplanned helps him to come across as spontaneous and able to think on his feet. He is a much younger man. He does not have the baggage that Trump does, and I'm sure Trump wishes that he did. He has a beautiful wife. Both of them have beautiful wives. Let's be honest. Trump's wife, Melania, she's a beautiful woman, but she's a different kind of beauty. And even there, there is baggage from Trump's being a playboy very publicly for years and years and years, being divorced and having affairs and bragging about going after other men's wives, all of that is awful. And it's not to say that there can't be any grace or forgiveness, but it is to say it would be better to have somebody who does not have that baggage. DeSantis, so far as we know, unless Trump knows and has some evidence DeSantis doesn't have that baggage. He has a beautiful wife who is smart and capable and being on his arm very much helps him to look the part of the kind of person we would want representing our country to world leaders, but more importantly, to our own people. He has a beautiful family and he shows up with his wife, Casey, and I'll play a cut from that as well. Here is what Ron DeSantis showing up in Iowa unannounced looked like and sounded like. Hey, 
What do I not hear? I don't hear booing. I don't hear cheering. I don't hear nasty persons. I hear smiling. I can hear the smiles. Even if you're not seeing the video on my podcast, you can follow the link. I'll put it in the description for this podcast episode, as with all the rest of the links. But even without seeing it, you can hear the smiles. You can hear the laughter. You can hear the buzz. And it is a happy sound surrounding Ron DeSantis. But at a certain point, Ron DeSantis stood up on a table with his wife, Casey, and delivered some brief remarks. And again, keep in mind, all the more rather than less for this being unplanned, this is a really good look. One last cut, one last clip. Take a listen. Here's Ron DeSantis speaking in Des Moines. Uh, but if you're willing to do that and you're willing to deliver results, uh, the people are there. They'll follow uh, because they just want to see a better future. So we've done that in Florida. They've done that in Iowa. You know, we're going to have a chance uh, pretty soon to make sure that's done in every state in this country. Yes, yes, yes. I vote yes. I vote yes. Truth, beauty, goodness. I would contend and will contend and will continue on contending. Truth and beauty and goodness are typified more holistically in a more orderly way by Ron DeSantis in Florida during his time as governor thus far. And as it seems increasingly apparent, he is going to announce that he is running for president. Even his approach to potentially running for president in 2024 is more orderly than what Trump has been offering up. And I don't say this as though I wouldn't vote for Trump if he wins the nomination, but it would be better if Ron DeSantis wins nomination because God is a God of order and peace, not a God of chaos and disorder. It would be better for our presidential politics, for our federal government, for our national reputation, for our national character to be represented by and led by DeSantis based on what he has demonstrated, not just said, but demonstrated thus far. Lastly, and then I really do have to run, DeSantis's revolutionary defense of the classics, some opinion and commentary in the Wall Street Journal, written by Cornell West and Jeremy Wayne Tate. Briefly, and I quote, Governor Ron DeSantis just gave a welcome boost to the classical education movement. He signed legislation allowing high school students to qualify for Bright Futures Scholarships, a state fund for college education by submitting scores from the classic learning test instead of the SAT alone. This move will likely be portrayed wrongly as partisan and conservative, but the greatest works of civilization have always been about spurring, not preventing, radical change. They teach us about the revolutionary ideas of the past and help us better understand the present. The richest ideas of what it means to be human are those that have stood the test of time. 
Many of the seminal works of literature, history, philosophy, science, and theology were revolutionary in their respective ages. Turn the pages of Galileo Galilei's The Two New Sciences, and you'll experience the alteration of humanity's view of itself in relation to the heavens by disproving the then common belief that the planets revolved around the earth rather than the sun. Galileo laid the foundation for modern science. Isaac Newton swept aside what remained of the old world's scientific superstitions only to find himself upstaged two centuries later by Albert Einstein's relativity. Like revolutionary ideas today, the ideas of yesterday were provocative and in many cases much more consequential. Galileo was put on trial because he upset the status quo. In the 13th century, Bishop Stephen Tempier of Paris condemned key works of theologian Thomas Aquinas for being too radical. Soviet dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn and civil rights activist Martin Luther King Jr. were imprisoned for their views. In colonial America, James Madison and his co-authors feared printing their names on the Federalist Papers, so they hid under aliases. Even the most mild-mannered of philosophers stirred trouble for thinking against the grain. Plato watched his great teacher Socrates put to death for his teachings. Revolutionary figures of the past give us insight into the present and allow for reflection on the consequences of their choices. Julius Caesar, one of antiquity's most recognizable leaders, teaches us the cost of revolution through his histories. By crossing into Rome with his armies, he ended the Republic and created the Roman Empire, a crime for which he paid with his life. But in his firsthand descriptions of the often brutal tactics he employed to achieve political transformation, he left behind deep insight. Caesar's direct and simple prose conveys the reality of going to war, all without reference to contemporary conflicts. That's one of the virtues of the classics. They are a means of considering what is true without invoking the blind partisanship that encourages thoughtless action. There's nothing we need more today than the cultivation of reason and understanding. That's why Mr. DeSantis's support of classical education has universal merit that transcends partisanship. Education based on values, logic, and discipline isn't Republican. It's timeless. Now, I'm uncomfortable with the revolution thing because I don't think it's revolutionary to want progress. Here I would quote again C.S. Lewis. We all want progress, but progress means getting nearer to the place where you want to be. And if you have taken a wrong turning, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. There's nothing progressive about being pig-headed and refusing to admit a mistake. And I think if you look at the present state of the world, it's pretty plain that humanity has been making some big mistake. We're on the wrong road. And if that is so, we must go back. Going back is the quickest way on. Might I suggest that progress is a good thing. The progressives are wrong, but progress is a good thing. Conservatives are not opposed to progress. Republicans are not opposed to progress. What Republicans and conservatives have historically, since the days of Edmund Burke, what conservatives have historically always been for is ordered liberty, not because we want less liberty, but because we want more liberty for longer, and therefore there has to be order, or else we become slaves to sin and folly. Do remember that Edmund Burke strongly opposed the abuses of the colonial administration in India, strongly and publicly opposed abuses of non-Christians in a far-flung land because we claim to be Christians. 
and yet we're allowing this to be done? He called for accountability because men were getting into office, into positions of authority representing the British government abroad and making themselves very, very wealthy by abusing their power and abusing the people of foreign countries. Edmund Burke was the father of modern political conservative thought and philosophy. And when we read, let's say, the classics generally, but more specifically, reflections on the revolution in France, we understand why Thomas Paine and Edmund Burke both alike supported the American War for Independence, but Edmund Burke was entirely opposed to the French Revolution, and we should be too. I really appreciate this piece in the Wall Street Journal, and it's further proof to my way of thinking, along with the C.S. Lewis quote, it's further proof that Ron DeSantis would be a better choice moving forward for Republicans, for conservatives, for Americans generally. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.